Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today as we head into the Labor Day weekend. Just a quick heads up, there will be no Three Martini Lunch on Labor Day, Monday, but we'll be back on Tuesday, tanned, rested, and ready. Uh, or at least ready. Uh, Jim, <laughs> let's, let's go to our good news today, and it really is good news. Uh, once again, the jobs come back stronger than anyone had expected. Non-farm payrolls increased by 1.37 million in August versus the Dow Jones estimates of 1.32 million. Even bigger, the unemployment dropped to 8.4% from 10.2% in July. The expectation was that it would drop, but only to 9.8%. Looks like government hiring led the way with gains also coming in retail and education and health services and even discouraged workers and those holding part-time jobs for economic reasons also fell down from 16.5% to 14.2%. And obviously, we still want to see those numbers get much, much lower. But uh, in the chart I see on CNBC, Jim, the comeback kind of looks like a V. Uh, we still got a long way to go. There's still way too many unemployed people. But the bounce back is still very impressive here. Yeah. And that whole, this good news for everyone who found the phrase reverse square root recovery kind of ominous and giving them traumatic flashbacks to math class. You may not need to know it. So far, the recovery is not flattening. Um, the, the thing that kind of, a couple things jump out of this. One is that we, we obviously, most of the job losses were driven by the pandemic restrictions. Businesses were forced to close. They had to lay off workers. And that's what put us in the economic hole that we were in. And everyone was like, okay, this was not, you know, banks made a whole bunch of bad loans. It was not a asset bubble that burst. It wasn't any of the traditional things that had caused a recession. It wasn't really, you know, grand financial or economic factors. It was, hey, we all have to stay inside our homes because we're minimizing our exposure to others. And it's really hard to participate in economic activity without interacting with others. You know, uh, deliveries from Amazon can only take you so far. So, you know, as gradually the, the various lockdowns and quarantine restrictions started getting lifting, we knew that some jobs were going to come back. I think the nagging fear was the idea that you'd get the low-hanging fruit back first, and then that there'd be a couple of places where you just wouldn't see job, you know, job growth would rebound for a while and then stall. And like I said, you'd have that flatlining, creating that reverse square root uh, appearance in, in the numbers. Uh, the, one of the things that kind of comes to mind is like, you know, the cruise industry is not going to come back anytime soon. Airlines are probably not coming back to anything, remember, to, you know, like pre-pandemic levels. With that, a lot of the travel and tourism, although lots of Americans did get into the car and end up going to the beach for stretches of the summer. Um, the, the general sense was, okay, we know there are certain things where they're just not going to be back to their regular levels until there's a vaccine and people are no longer afraid of the virus. But how much of the rest of the economy could, we, could Americans see getting a rebound? And it's a really nice number uh, that we're not seeing this slowing down. And I think one of the things kind of jumping is, you know, man, when you go from 10.2 to 8.4 in one month, that's almost two points. That, that, that's a, you know, sizable reduction. And two kind of really useful indicators. One is this uh, observation from Frank Luntz who noted, August 2012, Obama is running for re-election, and the unemployment rate then was 8.1. So we're only three-tenths of a percentage point higher than the equivalent point in 2012. Listeners remember that, you know, Obama won re-election. Obama won in part because people believed the economy was well on the road to recovery and that he was doing a good job on this front. 
I think if you're the Democrats, I think if you're the Biden campaign, you have to wonder whether you can continue to attack Trump on the economy the way you have. Because first, again, I don't think most Americans think he's, it's his fault. Obviously, he didn't make the, uh, the coronavirus. You can argue about how he's handled it. There's a lot of legitimate beefs there, but it's not like this. Uh, it's not like he saw this coming. It's like the world saw this coming. And this is the issue. It's not necessarily a reflection of bad government po economic policies that have caused these problems. And the second thing is, at some point, when you go from 14.1, was it, in April, to 8.4 in a matter of five months, all of a sudden, does it not seem so bad? Do people's, you know, sense of economic optimism start kind of rejuvenating? Do they see more signs indicating hiring? Do they know fewer people who have lost a job and can't find one? I don't know if 8.4% is enough to get you there. Maybe we need one or two more months to, uh, to really see a surge. But you know what? You know, first Friday in October, we're going to know what the numbers for September are. Uh, that probably, I believe that's the last jobs report before the election. November election is November 3rd, right? Yes. Right. So yeah. Yeah. You know, by the way, no, not giving anybody false information. Don't wait till the second Tuesday in November. <laughs> vote for the vote that first two or vote earlier. You know, uh, in fact, I believe in mid September in a bunch of States, you can start voting early, but, um, you know, this is pretty, look, you would rather have not had this enormous economic cataclysm in the first part of the year. But the rebound we're enjoying is going to be pretty close to what the Trump administration would want to see. And uh, I think it makes it a little bit tougher for you know, the Biden campaign to accurately claim, oh, look, Trump has gotten us into an economic pit that's going to take a really long time to dig out of. Jim, I remember pretty clearly, I'm, I'm sure you do too, the dancing on the ceiling that the Obama campaign was doing after the September jobs report came out in 2012 because it dropped from 8.1 to 7.8. They had kind of set up this expectation that if they could get it below 8%, all was right with the world. And so when it dropped that three-tenths of a percent, uh, it really fed into the narrative that uh, the things were on the rebound. Obviously, we've seen long term that it's one of the slowest uh, rebounds from a severe economic downturn that we've had in American history. But if the, the Trump administration can get below that, which, uh, you know, as you get lower and lower, the jumps are going to get smaller and smaller. But if you can get below eight, which I guess is not out of the question, uh, it, they'll have a case. They'll certainly have a good case. And like you said, I don't think most people blame him for the economic downturn in the first place, although Biden, of course, is alleging that uh, because they didn't do more in the early stages of the virus, that's why the economy tanked. We'll see if the public buys that argument either. Greg, I'm old enough, and you are too, to remember green shoots. <laughs> green shoots. <laughs> recovery summer. Recovery summer of 2009, 2010. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, the idea that, like, you know, these first little, first little inklings of job creation early in the Obama administration, I think it was Tim Geithner, compared to those first crocuses in spring. It was a long, slow period to get back to pre-recession hiring levels. Jim, let's talk about our bad martini now. And this has uh, a lot of different layers to it. Uh, this is about the Atlantic story, uh, which alleges that President Trump ultimately refused to go to the commemoration, the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I commemoration at the Ain Marne uh, cemetery in France. Uh, according to sources within the story, uh, he didn't want to make the trip. Uh, not only was the weather bad, but uh, he said, allegedly, that uh, those buried there were suckers and losers. And so that, of course, is uh, making anybody who doesn't like Trump and possibly some others 
horrified that, that he would allegedly say something like that about uh, service members of this country who have given the last full measure of devotion. Uh, and of course, he, he did say, we have uh, him on camera back in 2015, talking about how uh, he didn't consider John McCain a hero because he preferred heroes who didn't get captured. And maybe that's feeding into those who are believing this. But there's also problems with this story. There's a problem, as you mentioned uh, in the morning jolt today, that uh, the Atlantic claims that Trump also didn't want wounded vets or vets who had had amputations near him because people don't want to see that. And as you point out, there's a lot of uh, evidence that he has no problem with that. Then there's the fact that there's allegedly four sources to this, none of whom are on the record for Jeffrey Goldberg, who wrote this story. And Jeffrey Goldberg, of course, is the one who fired Kevin Williamson because the staff didn't want him. Uh, here's what Jeffrey Goldberg said to Jim Shooto this morning about, uh, you know, why did these people go on the record? I'm curious why these people didn't want to go on the record. We're two months from an election, and these are horrible insults to service members. Did, did they explain their thinking as to, as to why they wouldn't put their names to these accounts? Well, like, you know, like you, when you're faced with the same situation, you always ask for people to go on the record. Sure. And then ultimately you have to make it when they don't want to go. And we've both experienced uh, why people don't want to go. They don't want to be inundated with uh, angry tweets and, 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 and all the rest. I think another question could be, Jim, why did you publish this with nobody on the record? But uh, what do you make of all of this, including Jeffrey Goldberg saying, oh, these people didn't want to go on the record because they're afraid of mean tweets? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't quite get it. Because on the one hand, if you feel like this is important enough to communicate to the American public, and you've been there, first of all, if you hear the president say, I don't get it, I don't understand why these people would uh, do this and make these sacrifices for their country, if he calls, so if he really does all those things, I'm kind of surprised nobody, nobody resigned on the spot. And I don't quite understand why you'd be like, if, if it really, you know, by, by, maybe I'm over-exaggerating the, uh, how much people want White House jobs. But I, I just, you know, first of all, there are this many people, and Trump is saying these things, I'm surprised no one's rebuking him. You know, Mr. President, how can you say that? How can you not understand why these people did this? Or how can you call them losers? How, how can you, like, that's the first thing, which is a little strange. Um, the fact that these are all several years old and describe incidents from several years ago uh, just kind of makes me wonder, like, has Goldberg been sitting on these stories for a while and wanted to save them for the, the, the campaign period? I, you know, it's a little bit strange. The second, the third thing is it's this, the idea that, well, I'm going to tell the country about it. I'm going to tell it to Jeffrey Goldberg, but I'm not going to put my name on it because I don't want the president to tweet mean things about me. I don't, I, I'm sorry, I don't buy that. I, I don't, I don't understand that, that reasoning there. That doesn't make any sense. There's one other wrinkle, which we haven't gotten into, Greg, which I think kind of indicates, we all have strong suspicions about who these sources could be. Uh, there is no shortage of people who have left this administration in less than warm and appreciative terms uh, and who have criticized the president publicly since. Uh, former Secretary of Defense James Mattis is one of them, but I think probably the most useful and illustrative points comes from, there's a section of it in which uh, former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly's son, Robert Kelly, was killed in Afghanistan. They went to see his grave and reportedly, at least quoted by, you know, by Goldberg in this article, Trump, while standing by Robert Kelly's grave, turned directly to Chief of Staff John Kelly and asked, I don't get it. What was in it for them? Earlier today or late yesterday, David Frum tweeted out, Americans, if you can read, you can figure out who the source of the story is. Obviously, the implication being that 
this comes from White House Chief of Staff John Kelly. Uh, there's no indication in that anecdote of anybody else being with them at the grave. And certainly the implication is, well, okay, well, this is, you know, Kelly, Chief of, the White House Chief of Staff, former White House Chief of Staff is the source. By the way, David Frum works for the Atlantic, uh, which is probably one more indication. You know, you might, people might say, ah, all right, so Frum has probably talked about this with Goldberg. He knows who the source is. Um, by the way, David Frum took down that tweet. So I don't know whether Goldberg or somebody else said, what are you doing? Take that. Don't, don't say that, you know. So it's possible it's Kelly. Uh, it's possible Mattis is the source for one of these anecdotes. It's, you know, uh, the two of them and uh, McMaster saw themselves as the committee to save the world and the generals who were going to uh, keep Trump on the right track and on the straight and narrow. Um, there, there's, it wouldn't surprise me if any of those figures were sources. I do think, though, if you think this is important enough, and clearly the implication of this is that the president is a, a horse's tushy, and doesn't understand anything about the military, doesn't understand anything about honor and sacrifice. He is utterly oblivious to what makes people put on that uniform. If you really believe that, then come on out and say it. Yeah, you're going to get angry tweets from the president. You know, I, I can't believe that's the sort of thing that keeps John Kelly awake at night. I, you know, John, uh, James Mattis said he, nothing keeps him up at night. I have a really hard time believing he's afraid of, of Trump tweets or something like that. Um, so this is deeply frustrating. And then, as you mentioned, the, the anecdote... That anecdote about Trump not wanting to be around amputees, I, I can't prove that it's BS, but the present, this was, you know, there's a specific date to it, sometime in 2018. Well, look, there were White House events with amputated veterans in 2017. There were Trump signed a guy's uh, artificial arm on the campaign trail in 2016. And there were events at the White House with disabled veterans, including amputees, in 2019. So on that one, I'm going to say, mm, sorry, not buying it. I don't, you know, the other thing is besides the fact, look, I, Trump could say all kinds of horrible things. I think the McCain quote that you cited example is mean, and a lot of people say, oh, well, that's because he was particularly mad at McCain. Okay, but he didn't say, I don't think John McCain is a hero. He said, I think the heroes are the ones who didn't get captured, right? That's a slur on all POWs. You may not have meant it that way, but the way you, when you say the idea is that people who get captured aren't heroes, yeah, I'm sorry, Mr. President, you know, that's, that's a pretty broad-based, uh, you're, you're hitting everybody else as part of collateral damage to your attack on McCain. So the president deserves criticism for what we know he said. By the way, that quote was at a conference on camera. There's no dispute about the president saying that comment about McCain. This stuff behind closed doors, I'm a little more skeptical of. And the one about the idea that he doesn't want to see amputees, I'm just not buying it because of, you know, previous public events before and after. I can't prove that he didn't say it. I just say it doesn't, does not line up with what we've seen in terms of public ceremonies at this White House. A couple of exit thoughts on this, Martini, Jim. First of all, I saw some people on Twitter yesterday saying, normally, uh, if there were no on-the-record sources, I, I would uh, raise some eyebrows on this. But since it's Jeffrey Goldberg, I, I know it can be trusted. I'm thinking, <laughs> really? <laughs> Jeffrey Goldberg, who bowed to the mob on Kevin Williamson? That, uh, well, that... Didn't the Atlantic have like one big story on a police shooting that turned out to be totally wrong? I can't remember. Okay. Wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't yeah. surprise me. And the other thing that a lot of... Uh, Trump supporters are pointing out today is that John Bolton talked about uh, the French cemetery uh, change of plans in his book, which was obviously an anti-Trump uh, uh, project uh, from, from beginning to end. And he did not mention anything about Trump saying those things. Uh, he said it was a weather issue and small country roads would be hard to get him back to Paris or whatever in case of an emergency. And so ultimately in the bad weather, that was what was, that was the decision made since they couldn't fly Marine One. So 
Does that is that an effective counter or is that just the effort to defend it's, the president? Oh, yeah, it, it's another uh, item or two to put on the pile of counter evidence. I, I think, look, we've all seen Trump say really obnoxious things. We've all seen Trump say things where you can't believe it, where he seems unbelievably tone deaf, where he seems just disrespectful to everything that has come by, who just doesn't recognize the importance of his role of the presidency and his... Uh, the kind of reverence that I think is required for anybody who puts on the uniform and who is willing to, you know, risk their lives and in some cases make that ultimate sacrifice for their country. The general gist, you know, there's, I can't point to Trump's sterling character and say, oh, he would never say that. But some of these specific examples seem, it was interesting, somebody said they sound like something a screenwriter would say. And the more it sounds like, the more Trump sounds like a villain in an Aaron Sorkin production, (laughs) the more I think either... Trump didn't say it exactly that way, and this is how somebody's choosing to remember it, or maybe somebody's using a little bit of uh, exaggeration or, or something like that. It's the sort of thing where if, if all four sources of, of Goldberg's came out and said, yep, this is me, I'm Kelly, and I say he's, I, this is what he said, well, all right, you got, you got, there's somebody putting their reputation on the line, right? We've seen so many cases of anonymous sources claims not panning out that I just... Yeah, you can't begrudge people for being more skeptical of it. And I think, honestly, if, you, if this is the sort of thing that upsets you, Trump has said enough things on the record on camera that ought to probably be sufficient to, uh, to indict him in your mind. So, and by the way, it did not help, by the way, that Trump said that I never called John a loser. And of course, there's many times on video where he's called John McCain a loser. So um, frustrating all around. I, I, you know, I think people's I, viewpoints of Trump are pretty much locked in. And maybe it's a good parallel to our third martini here, Greg. Yes, yes. Crazy comments. Uh, On the record for sure here in our crazy martini, Joe Biden was in Kenosha, Wisconsin on Thursday, just a couple of days after President Trump went there. Uh, He had an event uh, that was open to cameras at at a church there in Kenosha. for me, one of the more cringeworthy moments was when Joe Biden uh, was going on and on about something and then said, I better stop or they're going to shoot me, which, you know, given the circumstances in Kenosha was uh, uh, typical for Biden's tone deafness. But here's the moment we're, we're going to focus on here. Uh, Biden was talking about how he thinks this rising young adult generation, so even after the millennials, Gen Z, I guess, he says are the least racist uh, generation that we've had. And the proof is... TV commercials. And by the way, the main reason why I'm optimistic, because of your generation, black, white, Hispanic, and Asian American. Did you ever think you'd turn on a TV? You're much younger than I am, but you're a little older than she is. Did you ever think you'd turn on the TV and roughly two out of three ads would be biracial couples selling a product? That never would have happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So there you go, Jim. Uh, America is uh, improving in this generation. Somehow he believes this generation is the one that's going to really turn America around because uh, a lot of biracial couples are selling products on TV. And as you point out, uh, this fits a pattern with Joe Biden. Yeah. So here's, first of all, like, yes, what he's saying is accurate. You no doubt see more biracial couples in advertising. It is no longer unusual. It is no longer the sort of thing that generates... Uh, comments or, or much of a public reaction one way or the other. And that's probably not the case 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, or even 80 years ago when Joe Biden was first elected to the Senate. 
Okay, I exaggerate slightly. It was only, <laughs> he was, what, 72, right? So, yep. So, you know, 48 years or so. Anyway, um, and so there are a lot of times Biden will say things like this, where you presumably doesn't have any animosity or, or something like that, but there's a certain tone deafness to it. There's a certain cringe-inducing ceremony, the, dad, we don't call them Orientals anymore, um, kind of sentiment you get. And, you know, this idea that, you know, Biden's like, God, can you believe all the biracial couples on TV these days? Yeah, we, we get it, Vice President. It's kind of cringe-inducing. And this is not a one-off. I have a corner post that will be up shortly. And there are a bunch of times, you know, whether it's, you know, calling Obama the first mainstream African-American who's articulate and bright and clean and nice looking, going to put you all back in chains, those Shylocks, poor kids are just as bright and talented as white kids, you ain't black. We all probably have some favorite Joe Biden gaffe, and at least half of them have some uncomfortable shifting in your seat racial component to them. One of the things I'm going to step back and kind of contemplate here, you probably remember the, you know, you cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. I'm not joking. That comment from Biden, which was when he started running for president in 2008. So he's at this conference and there's, it's on camera, it's recorded on C-SPAM. And there's an Indian American supporter there. And the Indian American supporter just basically greets him. He barely says a word or two. And Biden starts blurting out how he has so much support amongst the Indian American community. And he makes this comment involving the stereotypes about, you know, Indians running 7-Elevens and Dunkin' Donuts. It's just kind of, there's there's a really bad word I want to use. So I'm just going to say jerkish. The idea of like, if you meet someone and the first thing that comes to your mind is a cultural stereotype, you know, it's not necessarily evil, but it's just crass. It's just insensitive. It just is, you're just a jerk if you do this. And the the idea that Joe Biden has gotten this consistent pass on being a jerk so many times in his career is really kind of infuriating. I just think it's kind of really intriguing in light of the current phenomenon of everyone trying to be woke and social justice warriors and cancel culture. Now, we know that these folks generally were not Biden supporters in this Democratic primary. They were generally on the Bernie Sanders bandwagon. I just kind of feel like if Joe Biden gets this eternal pass, if he can always be your uncomfortable older relative talking about the Shylocks or the Orientals or stuff like that, then at minimum, everybody else deserves a pass at least once. At minimum, if the attitude is, well, we know Joe Biden means well, just it comes out wrong sometimes, okay. Fine. I, I'm fine with that standard. I want that to be the universal standard. I don't want seeing people getting fired for an intemperate tweet or, um, uh, you know, what, if, if, we, if, Biden gets a, if Biden is allowed to serve as president of the United States, having said all this kind of stuff, then I think you know, the average computer programmer or, you know, uh, pizza shop owner or everybody else should get a pass because we all say things we regret. We all say things that don't come out right. We're all capable of saying things they can offend others or, or may strike others as insensitive. So if Biden wants a pass for, you know, hey, look at all the biracial couples, fine. But please, let's extend at least that same kind of forgiveness and mercy to everybody else because Joe Biden is a repeat offender on this front. And yeah, look, as we just discussed a moment ago, Donald Trump says all kinds of horrible things. And it's, he does not speak the way I want him to speak. He does not speak the way a president is supposed to speak. But let's not pretend that the alternative is like night and day and completely different from what we've got right now. 
Jim, you know when uh, it happens so much that uh, the defenders really can't actually defend it, so they just kind of say, oh, that's Joe. Reminds me when uh, Sandy Berger got caught stuffing classified documents in his pants and socks in the National <laughs> Archives. That there disorganized, was- disheveled Sandy. You know, he always had a stain on his tie or a classified document in his socks. You know he, how it goes. You know, Greg, I used to get together with this group of uh, other conservative bloggers. And one of our like recurring jokes or mantras came from the book by Mark Leibovich came out a few years ago called This Town, right? And it was all about the insidery ways of Washington and people who read close and all kinds of conflicts of interest and how everybody was friends with each other and how everybody was constantly professionally and socially networking and very incestuous. And people who read it closely, this came out like somewhere in the, the Obama years, uh, the, the, people read it closely, noticed there were really almost no Republicans mentioned in this town. There were, there were like one or two chapters on them. But overall, this is about an extraordinarily incestuous relationship between the Obama administration, Democratic lawmakers, lobbyists, members of the media, and the various kind of socialite hangers-on in Washington. So you would see some sort of giant glaring, hey, somebody should be indicted over this sort of conflict of interest, and you'd get, really get a response of a lot of folks in the media saying, ha, this town. And it was just kind of this shrug, head shaking. Ah, what are you going to do? Ah, they're just incorrigible. Um, this, this way of responding without really responding that ended up forgiving a lot of, you know, uh, insidery, you know, unethical behavior of folks on the left. And I think it was that, you know, um, I think what we see the persistent tolerance of Joe Biden making gaffes and how differently they are treated compared to, let's think of George Allen saying macaca, right? I mean, you know, a bad enough gaffe can end somebody's career. But Joe Biden has this eternal hall pass and, you know, it just never seems to catch up with him. If he becomes president, it's probably not going to catch up with him any further. And we'll probably, my only hope is that if Biden is constantly making gaffes as president, it takes the steam out of the sails out of cancel culture because people will be able to point out, well, wait a second, if Biden can, says this, can say this and have no real consequences, why should, you know, Joe Schmo, the pizza owner, have the same kind of, uh, have even worse consequences? Yes, I believe that hall pass has a light blue D with a circle around it. There you go. <laughs> Sometimes the Democrats go down, but uh, Joe Biden's must be a lifetime pass. Anyway, Jim, have a great weekend. Enjoy your uh, Labor Day and we'll see you on Tuesday. See you Tuesday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Also, we are very grateful for your kind comments. Please give us a positive review and a five-star rating. We're always appreciative of that. Remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And we'll see you Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.